The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange on this Friday. I'm Kelly Evans, and the market is desperately trying to hold on to its gains today following the worst single-day drop for the Dow since 1987. We're up 566 right now, but we were up over 1,300 points at the highs. We've been losing some steam into afternoon trading. We're still on pace for the worst week since 2008 here. And the capstone to the week will be the president's 3 p.m. press conference to reportedly declare a national emergency. Bob Bassani is on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange with more on today's action. Bob, again, as I said, as we try to hang on to these gains. That's right. And we were drifting lower throughout the morning after starting big. 11.50 was the bottom. Uh, and that's when we got word that the president uh, might declare a national emergency. So if you put up the S&P, you'll see it, essentially we turned around and started uh, going back up uh, right about the time we heard word about that. So this is some form of fiscal stimulus, if in fact that is what the president is doing. S&P is down about 15 percent for the week. Boy, what a number. And uh, yesterday, for the first time, we started seeing some real differentiation uh, in some of these sectors. Generally, everybody's been down for the week dramatically. But yesterday, it started to change a little bit. We saw cyclical stocks like Dow, Boeing, Exxon, all down more than the rest of the market. And that generally is the situation uh, uh, for the week. If you take a look at more consumer-oriented names, they're all down, but they did better than the S&P 500. So I'm talking about uh, Walmart or Merck or Johnson & Johnson. It's the only down 10% here. And even, this is interesting, what we used to call high-growth fintech names like Visa and Apple also did better. Still down, but did better. So we started to see a little change. This happened just yesterday. We'll see what the president has to say at 3 o'clock. Ah. Kelly? Yep, looking forward to it. Uh Bob, thanks very much, Bob Bassani. And after the Fed's extraordinary move to inject more than a trillion dollars into the markets, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin telling CNBC earlier today that the fiscal stimulus talks are going well. Let's get out to our Steve Leisman for more. Steve, as we uh, wait every dribble and drabble we can about how the process is going between him and Pelosi and so much more. Yeah, a trillion dollar dribbles and drabbles. That's where we're at, uh, um, Kelly, right now. Uh, let me say the New York Fed today did speed up some action. We talked yesterday about them coming in doing $60 billion of purchases. Uh, that was supposed to be over the course of a month. Well, they did half of it this morning. Came in with $37 billion of purchases across the Treasury spectrum, different types of uh, maturities and instruments. Uh, now, the, we're hearing from several sources that uh, it had some limited effect, but not as much as you would expect what the Fed did yesterday. And they are looking for the Fed to do more. As Kelly said, we talked to the Treasury Secretary this morning, and he says they're talking to the Fed quite a bit. I'm in constant conversations with Jay Powell. The Treasury and the Fed have many authorities. We don't have the same authorities we had uh, before Dodd-Frank and the financial crisis, but we do have authorities. We will be looking at using those. The Fed yesterday injected a uh, trillion and a half dollars in an unprecedented move. They announced $60 billion of bond purchases. So we're looking at a whole range of alternatives. 
So uh, as you might imagine, uh, we've been talking to senior executives in the financial industry, and here's some of the things that they think the Federal Reserve might do. The first is obvious, cut rates to zero. That's uh, a lot of big expectation on the street. They're looking for more quantitative easing. That is the Federal Reserve to go in and purchase more assets. That could help unclog some of the illiquidity out there. Possible regulatory relief for banks so that they can take those Dodd-Frank new uh, liquidity ratios, bring them down so that banks can be counter-cyclical rather than pro-cyclical, making things worse by keeping things so tight. Finally, there's even a, a comment out there the Fed should buy a commercial paper. In any event, PIMCO writing, we think it's likely the Fed cuts the Fed funds policy rate to zero and confirms they will do whatever it takes to support markets. And speaking of zero, Kelly, I will give you right now the most up-to-date uh percentages there is a 49 percent chance or 49 and a half percent chance if you must uh, that the fed goes down by 100 basis points at the meeting next week and a 50.5 percent chance that it goes 125 basis points next wednesday so there's a 50 50 chance that the fed goes negative next wednesday even though nothing in their commentary has hinted they might do that Sorry, that's not negative. That would be, it would go, it's now between 100 and 125. So um, let me talk in terms of ranges because that's actually the way it's expressed. I know, it's I can see how I was confusing there. So it's it's 100 basis points would bring it down to 25 to to 50. um, And 0 to 0.25, there's a 52% chance right now. Wow. So that would be the full... I Call mean, here, it five twenty-five basis point cuts. I, I don't know if this even this distinction even matters, Steve. I mean, they're effectively going to zero, and it, the whole discussion now is going to turn to what comes next. I, I think that's right, and I will say that my best guess is the Fed's going to do what it can to avoid negative. I think we gave sort of short shrift to what Christine Lagarde didn't do yet the other day, which is she didn't go further negative. It makes me wonder if if ECB feels like it's hit a limit on going negative. I know the Fed is not that interested in that particular policy choice. Yeah, that's definitely the vibe we've gotten so far. Steve, thank you. Steve Leisman uh, with the latest for us. For more on what the policy response here should look like, I'm joined by Craig Callahan. He's president of Icon Advisors. Fred Mishkin is former Fed governor and currently a professor at Columbia University. And Quincy Crosby is here on set with me. She's chief market strategist at Prudential Financial. Um, Fred, I'm going to come straight to you uh, because we were just talking about what the Fed might do. Do you think they would never uh, go negative? It's very unlikely. Uh, The problem is not that they wouldn't like interest rate to be lower, but they don't feel that going uh, negative is actually going to be beneficial. And I think that Steve Leisman put it exactly right, that the the reason that the ECB didn't lower rates further is because it's not clear that that would be beneficial at all. So uh, the issue with this one, it tells us that monetary policy is limited in its ability to deal with this kind of shock. What, how would you describe this kind of shock relative to the 0809 one that you were there for? And, you know, there was a great line by Dave Zervos, uh, the economist today. He said, this is a solvency. This is about solvency, not liquidity. Um, you know, these things all become intertwined if it goes on far enough. My point is, how different could the response be in order to address solvency business operation issues as opposed to the liquidity kind of issues that were really at a climax in 0809? So the Fed really can't deal with uh, pure solvency issues. Uh, what it can do is make sure that the financial system actually functions well. And that's, that's really what its objective is going to be and what it eventually was successful at doing during the, during the crisis. I, I do think, however, that this shock is uh, not as existential. It's not as, a, 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 as serious in one sense, but very serious in another. Uh, in that, uh, no matter what, eventually we're going to be able to control this crisis. Uh, the problem is that right now... Uh, 
it does seem to be spinning out of control. And we haven't had a lot of help from the federal government on this. So uh, and this is one of the reasons I think the markets have reacted so badly that uh, uh, thinking that we can solve problems by cutting cutting taxes is just is just not sensible at all. The real issue is how do we contain the virus and where, where do we spend our money to make sure that we get the minimal effect of the virus on the economy and on 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 death rates. So right. It's not that's so, really yeah. key. I was I would just say it's not so much about cutting taxes. It's about not requiring extra expenditures for people whose income now needs to go towards stockpiling. Quincy, for example, you know, paying medical bills, dealing with their kids, not being able to be at school and so forth. Let me ask you about the markets uh, today. Or oh, a even, couple of, even, even on, on that, I think that, that, ahead, that, that's really limited to to the key effects are to make sure that we actually spend the money to, to get testing done and so forth and so on. Sure. Fair enough. All right. So, Quincy, we have about nine, uh, two hours till we're going to hear from the president. What are markets anticipating? What are they worried about? Because we have come well off the highs of the session. Well, they, they don't want a repeat of the other night. Because as you saw, we actually went into the market. The futures was actually pretty optimistic going in. And then it went from worse to worse to worse. And then the market just sold off the next day. So they want, they, they want to see the president has a plan. The plan is viable. If he's going to be speaking to us, have it. Maybe they told him, go out there again and erase, expunge that memory of the other night. And give the market uh, something more to hang on to, something viable. Is it a dollar figure the market's looking for? Yeah. Is it uh, just, you know, the specificity around the national emergency, which itself would only unlock, you know, what is it, $50 billion exactly. worth of funds? Yeah. It's not a huge amount. I mean, we yesterday uh, we had Scott Minard on Fast Money saying there needed to be a $2 trillion TARP program in order to stabilize this economy. Well, I'm assuming that the president is speaking with um, Secretary Mnuchin. You could see how the market responds to him. You could see how the market is is positive, knowing that he is working with uh, the other side of the aisle. And I, I would imagine they're going to say to him, you need to have the market hold up over the weekend, because that's the worry, is that the market sells off into this uh, simply because it, you don't want to go long over the weekend. You don't know what the headlines are going to be. So the, we'll see. The, the market is a wonderful referendum, as the president knows. And if we go into this long and we go and build on this momentum, the president is going to realize that he is, oh, the market says you're doing an all right job. It is a referendum on him today. Sure. Craig, let me bring you into this because we just heard from Carl Icahn last hour who said there are a lot of stocks uh, selling cheaply, so to speak, although he doesn't sound like he's jumping in to buy things yet. And, and I keep waiting to hear or see if there's any moves from Warren Buffett, which I think would say a lot to investors about whether valuations have gotten to the point at which they think they can buy great companies uh, at good prices. What do you say about these levels? Well, at Icon, we are value investors, and, and there's bargains all over the place. There's a tremendous opportunity in terms of stocks being on sale. In a sense, it's, it's a trifecta. You have stocks on sale, the Federal Reserve easing, and fiscal stimulus coming. That, that's as good as it gets. Well, yeah, unfortunately, uh, we're down 30 percent in a month. So uh, everyone right now is trying to figure out, is now the time for me to get into this market because the worst outcomes are priced in? The economy is going to get through this. The country is going to get through this. And if so, specifically, Craig, where do you think they should put their money? Generally, in, in what got hurt the most on the way down, we would expect financials, technology, uh, industrials and consumer discretionary to lead the way out of here. It may take a few weeks here to form a bottom. There could still be some selling, but we would expect to be back to those all-time highs by the end of the year. 
How focused are you on balance sheet health of the companies in these sectors? I assume you wouldn't want people to buy the indexes broadly, that there's probably a big difference between those that have high debt levels and those that don't, or do you think it's all being oversold? There's a a view out there that there's a lot of corporate debt, and I don't see it. I've looked at, uh, for the S&P 500, uh, debt to EBITDA, debt to equity, debt to assets, and it's far lower than it was last decade. They look very healthy to me. So you think people can pretty much buy the sectors? Yes. Yes. Okay. Let me ask you one follow-up. So you said financials, tech, industrials, consumer discretionary. You know, some are suggesting the financials are permanently repriced here because we're entering a period of low, possibly negative rates further out the curve for the banks. You know, zombification like we've seen in Japan and Europe and so forth. Uh, Why are you uh, optimistic that outcome won't happen here for the banks? Bankers are better than, than people think. They, they know how to make money in low interest rates. They can take money in at one rate, mark it up three percentage points, and loan it out. They can do that in low rates. They can do it in high rates. They're, they're very good at that. All right. And finally, uh, Mr. Michigan, let me circle back to you then. I feel a little better, you know, as I always do after hearing from Craig. So let's, let's go back to uh, how big the bazooka, so to speak, you think should be right now to help the economy through this period of time. Again, we're not necessarily talking about a business cycle issue. We're talking about a hit from coronavirus, a strange challenge to address. Uh, What's the right package? So I actually think that fiscal policy, although it's going to be very important in this context, is long at it takes a long time to act. So the most important thing is to spend money right now to basically have a crash program to make sure we can test everybody. Uh, to make sure that we actually have hospital beds uh, and so that we can contain this. And I think that's really the key because the the most important thing right now is to basically contain the shock. It is true that there's going to be a knock-on effect on the economy that's going to be serious, and fiscal policy can help with that. But if this shock just gets out of control, uh, then then we're in a whole new world and uh, 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 bets are off that uh, that things are going to get better quickly. Yeah, a little bit now to avoid a lot more in the long uh, run. Well, I'd say as much as you can do now, it's, it's not just money. It's actually putting the resources in the places that can actually start to contain this, uh, this, 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 uh, this pandemic. That's the key. And it's a worldwide issue, not just a U.S. issue. All right. Amen. Thank you guys for joining me today. Fred Michigan, Craig Callahan and Quincy Crosby. And don't forget to catch CNBC's special coverage of the market in turmoil and our special report tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Now we turn to the cruise stocks, which are seeing some relief today with Norwegian logging the biggest gains. Right now it's up about 15 percent. But keep in mind, these stocks are down 70 percent or more over the past month with some cruise lines suspending global operations. And it's a similar story for the airlines, too. Look at American, United, and Delta. Uh, American and, and Delta are only a little bit higher, Delta by 7%. Uh, United turning negative on the session uh, there. You can see these are declines of 50%, 40% in Delta's case over the past month. Uh, capacity cuts, CEO pay cuts, hiring freezes, all of this in response to the pandemic as worries spread about coronavirus. On that note, uh, today we did get some good news when it comes to testing. And for that, I'm joined by Kate Rogers with the very latest. Kate. Hey there, Kelly. Well, we will kick it off with Roche getting emergency authorization 
from the FDA for its high-volume test systems, which it says can return results in three and a half hours. It says it'll have millions of tests a, a month available for use on its systems in hospitals and reference labs. More health centers around the country are also starting drive-through testing, something, something rather that Dr. Zeke Emanuel telling Squawk this box this morning is tremendously important to keep people out of doctor's offices so they don't risk infecting others while they're getting diagnosed. And an update on where the numbers stand as of this afternoon, more than 137,000 cases confirmed around the globe with more than 5,000 people dead. Even as we're seeing dramatic declines in new cases in places like China and South Korea, numbers are still quickly rising in Iran, Italy and across Europe. In the U.S., confirmed cases surpassing 1,700 this morning in 46 states and Washington, D.C., with at least 40 deaths so far from the virus. And the World Health Organization head is saying that Europe is now the epicenter of the pandemic, adding that more new cases are being reported each day than were reported in China at the height of its epidemic. Kelly. A lot of grim milestones there, Kate. Uh, we appreciate it. Kate Rogers. Coming up here on The Exchange, coronavirus has caused a plunge in U.S. business conditions to record lows. According to Morgan Stanley, we'll ask their chief U.S. economist what that's telling us about what's to come. Plus, a former IMF and Fed official has a message and a plan for how to mitigate that economic shock. He'll join us right on the other side of this break. We're back in two. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Central banks around the world are boosting liquidity as stock markets crater, and that's causing a scramble for cash. The Fed yesterday announcing it'll pump more than a trillion dollars into the financial system, and that's just six days ahead of its next rate decision. What more can be done? My next guest has some ideas. Joining me now is Bill Lee. He's the chief economist at the Milken Institute. Bill, you had some great calls last time. I don't know if we're seeing the forbearance uh, yet on small biz loans, but your point is there's other tools the Fed can use here. So uh, what, what, what do you have in mind today? Well, I think the key word is going to have to be targeted. I'm a macro guy, so I'm a very a big on using interest rates and the usual fiscal tools and monetary policy tools that the Fed and, and Treasury are using. But right now, the situation is that in this virus bomb that we're encountering, we have to be able to target the victims of the bomb. And in order to do that, we have to first identify them, which means we have to test. But also, we have to ensure that the companies that are affected and the people who are affected are, are put whole so that by the time the virus is over, they're in a position to actually experience the rebound, which means access to small business loans, mm -hmm. which means unemployment insurance that's targeted to the virus-affected people. Because the one thing we have to remember is a broad-based recovery plan is going to be wasting a lot of fiscal bullets. Well, and, now, here, here's where I got to jump in, because while I know what you're saying, I'm not sure it's, it's, it's effective. Here's, here's why. We, there are people who are going to lose their jobs who, have no, who themselves have nothing to do with contracting coronavirus. Why? Because people aren't going to the ballparks like they were going to this spring. And so the guy selling concessions is going to have to file for jobless claims. And we shouldn't deny them to him because he himself is not directly involved with coronavirus. Now, he is probably able to prove some related hardship. But you get further and further down that daisy chain, it's going to be a lot harder to draw the you know, direct cause, cause and effect. 
Absolutely, Kelly, and that's the administrative nightmare of, a, of having targeted programs. But the alternative is a broad-based uh, Medicare for All kind of program, which is unbounded in cost and totally ineffective. But and it doesn't allows- have, yeah, Medicare, Medicare for All is like a $50 trillion, you know, kind of thing out there. I mean, you could do something like a payroll tax cut. You could literally exactly. even cut $1,000 checks to families. We had Jeremy Siegel on here the other day saying, why not declare a three-month total tax holiday or give $2,000 checks to people? The idea is, look... Everyone in this country, for better or worse, is rushing to stock up on goods. They pro- we, what, 40% of Americans don't have $400 in savings or whatever the figure is built. People need a little extra cash to get through this time. Don't they deserve that? Absolutely, but we target it to the low-income individuals. We don't give it to Carl Icahn, right? So it's unlike Hong Kong, where we give $1,000 to every citizen, we give every $1,000 to every citizen with a low-income level, and also more to the people who are directly affected by the virus itself. That's a great point. So could the government come up with a plan to do that in, you know, quickly, expeditiously here? Because it sounds like right now the plan coming together um, is focusing on extending jobless benefits, you know, the food uh, stamp program and some other things. Is something like you're describing feasible? Absolutely. And the one thing that we haven't mentioned enough about saving businesses is that these businesses are going to be suffering a lot of cash flow problems and they have to have rent relief, tax relief and loan access to the funding, which is why the Fed moved to ensure the short term lending markets is so critical because we need these repo markets to ensure access to, by banks to get the kind of funding to supply the small loans uh, that are needed by the small businesses. Absolutely. And a couple examples of this happening in a piecemeal fashion today. You've got the FCC saying major Internet providers have agreed for the next 60 days not to cancel service if it's related to coronavirus uh, for residences or for small businesses. You have utilities on Long Island and elsewhere temporarily suspending shutoffs in the case of non-payment. And as long as the, you know, the companies providing those services themselves can get reimbursed, to me, this seems like exactly the way through this period. And Kelly, the reason why a lot of your uh, guests and critics poo-poo these plans is because they like big picture big bazookas. And, and I have to tell you, the people who are most affected are going to be the small little guys, and you cannot use a big bazooka on a small little guy. Is there anything else you could come up with that would more directly help them? I think, I think the, the targeted income-based rebate is going to, income rebate is going to be the best way. And, and, and one way to do that is to use either Social Security payments and just add more to your Social Security payment for the elderly, or unemployment insurance claims, add more to those. And, and, and those are direct channels that we already have to funnel money into that population, just boost it a little bit more. No, those are great ideas. Bill, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Bill Lee is Milken Institute's chief economist. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. economist says the Fed's liquidity injection may have bought some time but didn't go far enough. She'll join me live on what she expects the Fed will or won't do next. Plus, the spring housing season is nearly here, but it will look different this year because of the coronavirus. We'll talk about just how different ahead. As we go to break, here's a look at the sectors of the S&P 500. Energy is still in the red, just barely coming into the green right now. Financials are the leaders. The exchange is back in two. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. Trading action has been fast and furious this week. Uh, The week that was on pace to be the worst since the crash in October of 1987, depending on how we close out today. So let's take stock of how we got here. This is Monday. Stocks plunged to start the week. It was coronavirus fears. And remember, the shocking oil price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia, the Dow falling 2,000 points and oil plunged nearly 25 percent. You can see here we really just kind of tanked into the close as well. It was the worst day for stocks since 2008. Then came turnaround Tuesday. There. See, I'm, I'm getting the hang of it, guys. They're on turnaround Tuesday. I'm getting the hang of it as we go on here. It's a better mood uh, momentarily. We rallied 950 points in the morning, although at 1125 a.m., the mood changed after congressional members said an economic plan is, quote, not there right now. And the CDC said this outbreak is beyond containment. Uh, there we go. Let's clear it up. So this is turnaround Tuesday. We started strong. We lost our gains a little bit in the middle of the session. Then the president said he would uh, visit Congress the following day and consider a payroll tax cut. And then stocks took off on that news into the close. It ended up being the best day since December of 2018. Different story. Big change of mood on Wednesday. The WHO declared the coronavirus officially a pandemic, and D.C. failed to announce any concrete plan for stimulus. The Dow fell 14,064 points. That was its second biggest points loss ever. 1,400 points, I should say. But let's flip over to Thursday then. Another historic day, and not in a good way, with the Dow and the S&P posting their single worst percentage drop since 1987. The president failing to impress the market in his primetime address to the nation the night before. The Fed's announcement that it would inject more than a trillion dollars into the system didn't help, and we officially closed in a bear market yesterday, ending an 11-year bull run. So here we are today, up more than 800 points, but off the highs of the session and up about 900 now. In fact, as I said, this will determine whether it is the worst week for stocks since 1987. And as companies put contingency plans in place for coronavirus, the New York Stock Exchange, too, has a backup plan. What would happen if the trading floor had to be shut down? We go to Bob Bassani for that. Bob? And the important thing here, Kelly, the NYSE is now allowing most personnel to work from home. Now, traders here on the floor, they're right here behind me. And for the most part, they're not NYSE employees. So yesterday I asked NYSE President Stacey Cunningham what would happen to the floor in the event someone tested positive for coronavirus. Let's listen in. If there is an outbreak, we can clean the floor and reopen pretty quickly as well. Uh, So that's something we're not planning to close the floor uh, at this time. But as you mentioned, we could and we could trade fully electronically. Now, the NYC has a business continuity plan in place for decades in case the floor needs to close for a flood, a snowstorm, or any other disaster. But this plan would allow the NYC to trade electronically without the floor if it needs to. The market makers and the floor brokers that are here can continue to participate in that electronic trading, though there may be some limitations around the closing auctions. The NYC has closed many times over the years, notably for four months at the outbreak of World War I. That was 1914, the death of JFK in 1963, after the 9-11 attacks, and after Hurricane Sandy in 2012. In the situation now, there is the possibility of closing the floor but keeping the markets open electronically, and that's different. Traders tell me that many teams are splitting 
up now behind me, for example. So I'm working from separate offices in order to avoid having an entire firm self-quarantine, a model that's being adopted by many companies. And Kelly, you heard from Secretary Mnuchin this morning, they do not want to close the markets. In the event they have to close the floor, maybe, but nobody wants to close the stock market. And that's coming right from the top in the White House. Back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you very much, Bob Bassani. Now let's get to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Los Angeles and the San Diego school districts are closing starting Monday because of the coronavirus. That move affects 750,000 students. It is the latest in a series of school closings worldwide. Canada is advising against all non-essential travel outside of that country. Overseas flights returning to Canada will be limited to certain airports and travelers will be asked to consider self-isolating themselves. Germany's finance minister is condemning President Trump's European travel ban, calling the move, quote, grotesque. The minister is calling for solidarity between countries in the fight against the outbreak. And the Olympic torch relay in Greece has been halted after just one day. Organizers called off the relay after it attracted unusually large crowds. The handover of the flame to Tokyo Olympic officials will go on as planned next week. Lots of moving parts today. That's the news update this hour. Kelly, back to you. Yep, and all week. Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera, coming up, the president is declare, expected to declare a state of emergency this afternoon at 3 p.m. This as congressional leaders work around the clock to hash out any potential stimulus. We'll have the very latest. Plus, the hot spring housing season is facing some challenges from the coronavirus. We've got the numbers on that. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Some developing news out of Washington. House Speaker Pelosi announcing just now that she'll deliver a statement at 2 p.m. Eastern on the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act. We'll definitely carry that for you live. Following the worst single-day drop in more than 30 years, the Dow was up over 1,300 at the highs today. We're right now up just shy of 900 points. That's a 4.2 percent gain, similar for the S&P and the Nasdaq. Now, the 10-year yield almost went above 1 percent earlier, hitting 0.98 percent, and that was its highest level back since March 5th. And take a look at the XLE, giving back early gains to dip into negative territory. That's the energy ETF. Uh, it's back up about 1.3 percent. Apache Occidental and One Oak among the biggest weekly laggards, down 50 percent. All three on pace for their worst week ever. Some of your movers right now, we've got Slack sinking after reporting lower than expected billings for this year. It's down 18 percent. And shares of Boeing up about 8 percent after posting its worst day. That was yesterday in 48 years. Now, the coronavirus outbreak is forcing many schools, sports leagues and businesses to shut down. That's sending Morgan Stanley's business conditions index from a level of 38 in February to just 12 in March. That's near record lows. Joining me on the CNBC Newsline is Ellen Zentner. She's chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. Ellen, welcome. Hi, thanks, Kelly. How bad is uh, the coronavirus hit to GDP as far as you guys can tell so here? Well, I think there's very real threat, um, which should be obvious now with, as you mentioned, the amount of school closures and the, the order for social distancing, you know, very real chance for getting negative growth, which would mean recession in the U.S. And, and that, you know, the R word tends to scare people. But what I, what I ask folks is, is the not, the market been trading like we're in recession, fixed income markets trading like we're in recession, the Fed responding like we're in recession, or that's what we expect uh, to come from them. Uh, and fiscal policy acting like we're in recession. So does it really matter if economists are putting a negative sign in front of growth numbers uh, or not? I mean, clearly these leading sentiment surveys pointing to something nasty in the data to come. 
and uh, to your point, maybe just declaring the obvious for what it, the market is, is already telling us. So uh, trying to kind of prevent that event from happening, we do have this potential big fiscal stimulus announcement that's coming. The Fed has done a lot. Uh, can they help to make sure it's not a, a deeper contraction? Is that going to come soon enough, you think? Yeah, I think that they, they you know, act, of course, monetary policy has been able to act much more quickly than, than uh, fiscal policy, but fiscal has finally gotten on board, and we're seeing uh, signs that that is, uh, that we've lit, in a, lit a fire under that, let's say. And yes, the, the point is to cushion the blow. Um, you're not going to be able to do a whole lot against uh, the virus except from the health uh, health and, and public policy standpoint. If you're the Fed, you can cushion the blow uh, by helping households and businesses try to weather this as best they can. And so we expect the Fed to drop rates to zero percent. We expect a major quantitative easing program to be announced that's open-ended mm. um, to help be that backstop for financial markets. On the fiscal policy side, uh, as you mentioned, Nancy Pelosi will be making a statement. We've heard from the House on some of the measures that they would be pro- proposing, mostly targeted toward the lower income groups that are really going hurt, to get hurt when they can't report to work. Uh, and then on the uh, um, uh, and then from the president later today. So we think that, that a fiscal package on the order of, say, $500 billion or so, which would be a typical-sized response to a downturn, um, would go a long way um, in helping to at least take uh, some of the nightmare out of what's going on around the, the U.S. and around the globe of the spread of the virus and help to lay the groundwork for what the economy can look like on the other side of it. So, Ellen, you mentioned that you expect major open-ended QE uh, is coming. So I guess it doesn't really help to put a dollar figure to that. But what are they going to buy? I mean, it was interesting to hear Eric Rosengren of the Boston Fed last week say, look, buying the 10-year might not make sense because the yield is already below the Fed funds rate, whereas in the past that was seen as one of, kind of accomplishment of this policy. What would they buy and what will it accomplish? Yeah, so it's a good question. So QE is both treasuries and MBS, and let's not forget the MBS part of it. So in terms of treasuries, he's absolutely right. Why would you buy treasuries? You don't need to get longer-term rates lower, um, except that it is more about the messaging of just pulling out all the stops. Uh, and so there is some help that you can do there, especially in terms of supporting sentiment. On the MBS side, which we think is the much more interesting part of this, is that the prime rate has not dropped as much as longer-run uh, rates, longer-term rates. And so households are getting a benefit here. We're seeing a lot of refinancing going on. We're seeing a lot of rise in mortgage applications. Uh, but it could be even better if the Fed buys MBS and uh, mortgage-backed securities and stops letting MBS uh, roll off their balance sheet, you can get that mortgage rate even lower and get households an even bigger benefit. Our housing strategists think it could be uh, about 300 additional dollars in savings per month for households that are able to refinance right now. So the traditional spread between the 10-year treasury and your mortgage rate is around 1.9, maybe two points. You're saying that the Fed can start doing a big bond buying operation, essentially buying mortgage-backed securities. They could get that spread how low? I mean, do you think the mortgage rate would go below 3% because, you know, psychologically that could really cause a rush of activity? Yeah, well, and we're already seeing a, a big rush of activity. So just think of it as uh, even, even more that it would be providing there. I mean, I think they're going to view any kind of modicum of support that they can give to the economy as something that's appropriate um, to do. And, you know, QE is, of course, the most 
uh, you know, uh, focused on policy that they could do. But I think that we get an entire uh, package from the Fed as well. I mean, they can lower the rate on the discount window uh, to encourage more use of it. They can remind that they've got the uh, U.S. dollar swap uh, uh, swaps that they can do. You've also got um, uh, facilities that can be reignited that haven't been used since the financial crisis that can more directly channel credit into even non-financial sectors of the economy. And that may be needed when you've got companies uh, that are just down and out in the leisure and hospitality uh, area and areas of tourism. You know, it's easy to get these things done uh, and agreed to because there's a human story to this. It's sure. not bad behavior like the financial crisis. And that's why I think we're also seeing fiscal policy leaders uh, moving quickly now. Okay, Ellen, uh, really helpful, really insightful stuff. Thank you so much. Yep, thanks, Kelly. Ellen Zentner is the chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley. Let's get a news alert on Disney now. Julia Borson with us. Julia. That's right. Disney announcing that it is halting production and on its live action films due to coronavirus, saying there have been no confirmed cases of COVID-19 on their productions due to the current environment. They think it is in the best interest of cast and crew to pause production on their um, different projects, including a Little Mermaid shoot, which is expected to begin in London next week, um, a Home Alone movie, as well as a Peter Pan movie, both which were uh, many which were in pre-production. Of course, all of this comes uh, following the news that Disney shut down all of its parks, uh, just announcing last night that they're shutting down Disneyland here in Anaheim, as well as Disney World, as well as Disneyland Paris, in addition to halting any new cruise departures. And then Disney is also um, dealing with the issue of programming at ESPN on the news that all of those different uh, major league sports uh, leagues are shutting down all live sporting events. So a lot of challenges facing Disney right now. We do see that their shares are up nearly 6%, bouncing back from declines earlier this week. Back over to you. Yeah, thank you, Julie. In terms of symbolism, you have the Eiffel Tower in Paris uh, closing tonight until further notice. All right, this hour, we're just moments away from an update on the sweeping response act that will help Americans impacted by coronavirus. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is said to give remarks now at 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's just in about 15 minutes. Earlier, Secretary Mnuchin joined CNBC and said the president is doing everything in his power to protect our economy. The president is looking at a major stimulus package, whether it's through the payroll tax cut or whether it's through another means of delivering uh, liquidity to hardworking Americans. We've announced what will be about $200 billion of liquidity through delaying IRS payments. So hardworking Americans who have tax payments due or small and medium-sized businesses can delay them. I, I can assure you we will use whatever tools we need to make sure that the industries that are impacted by this get through this. And now we've learned that the president is set to declare a state of emergency amid this outbreak. Let's bring in our White House reporter, Eamon Javers, and Stephanie Miller is co-founder of Sand Hill Strategy. Eamon, welcome. Uh, we've seen a little bit of choppy market action today, kind of drifting lower earlier as there was some concern, like we heard from our market guests this morning, that the president uh, might not deliver the goods, so to speak. What should we expect to hear from him at 3 p.m.? Well, look, Kelly, I think you can expect a gusher of news here starting in about 15 minutes out of Washington, where both the Capitol and the White House are fully 
open for business in terms of getting legislation done. Uh, Drew Hamill, who is one of the speaker's top aides, has been tweeting out the number of times that Pelosi and Mnuchin have spoken today. The most recent one, he said they've spoken six times as of 12.50 p.m. And it was shortly after that sixth phone call between the two that Nancy Pelosi's office scheduled this 2 p.m. Uh, announcement up on Capitol Hill. We don't know what she's going to be announcing. So this is a case of deal or no deal. She's going about an hour before the president of the United States who will be in the Rose Garden at 3 p.m., as you point out. Uh, not, not clear entirely what he's going to announce there either. Uh, we do expect a national emergency declaration, but we don't know if he's going to invoke the, invoke the Stafford Act or the full powers under the Stafford Act. Yesterday he suggested maybe he would just do some of the minor pieces of that without specifying what that is. Uh, we have been asking aides here and senior administration officials all day uh, what the president's going to do, what that might look like, what powers that's going to unlock. No answers forthcoming from anybody here at the White House. So this is going to be one of those where we all sort of learn this in relatively close to real time, Kelly. And Stephanie, you think the bigger picture here is that the president's looking less and less likely to get reelected? Yeah, I mean, the last time he spoke, the Dow in the futures market lost a thousand points. Uh, the confidence in him and what this administration is doing for the economy is rather low right now. Um, I think he's got, uh, he, he made a very interesting decision. The White House clearly made a decision to make this statement during market hours. Um, and so it has to be more than just declaring a state of emergency. I think they're going to have to deliver something um, to try to get some confidence back in the market. But, you know, the economy is not the market. And the reason the, for the market sell-off is just complete lack of hope that there could be an economic um, sort of rebound or maintain where we were even just a couple months ago and that heading into the election, a bad economy is going to be really hard for him uh, to win re-election. Eamon, the, uh, the fact that Speaker Pelosi is going at 2 p.m. before the president's announcement, does that, uh, is that the fruit of her calls uh, with Mnuchin maybe leading towards some coordinated action in a good way or does it suggest there might be some friction and now she wants to be the first one uh, to the podium? Look, I'll tell you what, in the old days in Washington, if there was a deal, what you might have is uh, the Speaker of the House waiting for the President of the United States to announce it first, uh, and then the Speaker would go or follow up more or less simultaneously with the release of his or her own. Uh, this is an entirely different era, much more uh, factionalized, the bitter partisanship, uh, but, it, you know, I'd hate to read too much into it. The one thing I can tell you is that AIDS, right after we and others reported that we were expecting the president to make a national emergency declaration, I talked to uh, one White House official who urged me in the strongest terms not to report that because uh, in this official's view, uh, we simply don't know until the president says what he's going to say. So uh, we just don't know at this point exactly where the president's going to come down on this. Uh, and we don't know what that means for Nancy Pelosi, who put out a fact sheet last night of some of the elements that were baked into the deal. Now, after those six phone calls back and forth, you can imagine the deal has shifted quite a bit during the course of the day, day today. And so uh, we're dealing with a moving target in the dark here. Stephanie, what were you going to say? No, I just, I mean, Eamon, that's a, such a great point about the timing and the sequence of events, the clear lack of cohesion between the two. I think that most onlookers right now are not seeing leadership by any of the elected leaders of our country. The Senate is gone, right? So senators are not even in Washington anymore. The House it keeps saying they have to leave as soon as possible. And the president, the last time he commented to anyone at the market, didn't like any of it. And so, 
you know, people are looking for leaders. We're not, we're not even seeing it. It just doesn't, you know, give me any confidence that any of them are going to be here after this November, anyone who's up. Interesting. All right. And that's the backdrop for this big 3 p.m. announcement. Although, like I said, at 2, we're here, we'll hear from Pelosi first. Guys, thank you both. Stephanie Miller, sure. Eamon Jabbers bringing us that reporting today. Uh, and we'll have it all for you throughout the next hour or so. The busy spring housing season is already unofficially underway, but coronavirus is having a big impact. We'll get stats from across the country next. As we head to break, check out some of the most searched tickers on CNBC.com. Quite simply, the Dow and the S&P topping the list today. The 10-year Apple and Boeing rounding out the list. Welcome back. Dow's up about a thousand points right now, but one group not participating. Once again, it's the home builders, which are falling uh, as rates move up a little bit today. Dr. Horton getting hit the hardest. It's down at one point about five percent. That's not the only headwind facing housing as the spring season heats up. It's already facing big challenges from the coronavirus itself. Diana Olick is here with those details. Hi, Diana. Hi, Kelly. And this weekend will be a good gauge of how buyers are reacting, but they did lose that great benefit. Mortgage rates hit a record low two weeks ago, but moved sharply higher in the last two days, now back up to January levels. While several agents have told me that they are canceling open houses, others are continuing with lots of sanitizing and even face masks to greet you instead of warm cookies. In a quick survey this week, the NAR said 16 percent of realtors have already seen a drop in buyer interest from coronavirus, and one in four sellers are changing how their house is marketed. That is, many taking it all online. Redfin is now offering virtual showings so you can have an agent walk around the house with a tablet while you ask questions from your own home. Now, we do get home builder sentiment next week, and they're adding questions about supply chain issues. So we'll get a read on how all of this is hitting the builders, but of course, not hitting the builder stocks too well today, Kelly. Absolutely, Diana. Thank you, Diana Olick. Still ahead here, if you're freaked out by the public markets, how about going into private equity? Vanguard is making a big move into that area in order to bring that kind of investing to the masses down the road. More on the rationale for their move right after this. Welcome back. Dow's up just shy of 1,000 points right now. So we are headed back towards the highs of the session with two big events ahead of us. We'll hear from Speaker Pelosi at 2 and the president himself at 3 p.m. Keep you posted on all of that. Meantime, Vanguard, which pioneered the move to low-cost passive public index funds, is making a big push into private equity. Is this something mom-and-pop investors want right now? Joining me now is Fran Canary. He's principal and global head of private investment at Vanguard. Fran, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. So tell me why private equity, you know, it feels like it's, it's not Vanguard, right? It, it, it feels like this is just not what we're used to associating with your firm. Tell us why you're making this big move. Yeah, so Vanguard is long, you know, our number one mission and primary purpose is to try to improve outcomes, as you mentioned, for the average ordinary investor. And private equity is actually, there's a strong investment case for private equity, but it's largely just been reserved for the very, very largest wealth pools, and so our approach, like it has been throughout our entire history, is try to bring world-class outcomes to the average investor. And so this is, is right within our game plan of our history. Right. So this initially will be provided to institutions, you know, pensions, endowments, foundations, as I understand it, by Vanguard, but with an eye towards qualified investors down the road. I, you guys must have done a ton of back testing. I mean, are, are the returns there for private equity if you're going to start saying that to people it can be part of your portfolio? 
Yeah, so we have great confidence. Uh, Vanguard has a long history of working with outside managers, and so our process of evaluating managers who can actually deliver alpha. So on the public side, the public equity market, that's how actually Vanguard started. People may think of us as indexing, but we actually started in active management and actually we're one of the largest active managers on the public side. And we think that the same thing can happen on the private side. So if you can identify world-class talent, like we think we have with HarborVest, we think there's a strong case for outperformance for investors. How much outperformance are we talking relative to stocks? What are the, the simplest way you can explain the numbers? Yeah, the simplest ways are there's two real components. One is an illiquidity premium. And I think all you have to do is look at this week and see sure. illiquidity premiums everywhere on, on the run, off the run um, and assets. So there is an illiquidity premium because private equity is illiquid. And so that is run at around two to three percent historically. And then if you can find a manager that can, you know, get in the top half. Um, of performance, you can easily get to 4 to 5% over public equity over a holding period. And so in a low return world and with bonds around 1%, uh, we think this is an incredible case uh, for inclusion into portfolios. Sure. And so maybe still a year or two or, or more away from, like I said, mom and pop accessing it, but you're going down that road. Fran, before we have to go, I want to ask you about something else that our audience may be very interested to learn, which is that Vanguard households uh, during this market sell-off including on, a, on Monday, one of the worst days that we've ever had, 77% of them who traded shifted into equities. What does that tell you? Yeah, so um, in addition to the private investments, um, my team and I long have studied investor behavior at Vanguard, and we've been early on this trend. We've been seeing over the last three to five years, not only at Vanguard, but the industry in general, the, their cash flow has been counter-cyclical, meaning that buying equities when equities are down we think this has a lot to do with the value of advice and how many people are using advisors, whether it be robo-advisors or single fund solutions like target retirement funds, and we're even being you know, educated on the you know, power of rebalancing. Yeah, well, like you said, you guys are always at the Vanguard and private equity is the next one. Thank you so much for joining me to explain it, Fran. Thank you so much, Kelly. Fran Canary of Vanguard, and that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.